0: Well, good morning. Revelation chapter 11. I opened my commentaries on this chapter this week to be greeted with the following thoughts. Robert Mounts, the first commentary I usually read as I have found him to be balanced and succinct and clear, wrote in the very first line on this chapter. In turning to the matters in 11, 1 to 14, we come to a passage that is universally recognized as difficult to interpret. Wow, thanks, Bob. That was encouraging. That was helpful. Is that as opposed to the rest of the book? Leon Morris, another faithful biblical scholar that I have read for decades, uh, in the first line of the second paragraph concerning this chapter, This chapter is extraordinarily difficult to interpret, and the most diverse solutions have been proposed. I couldn't wait to read on. Tom Schreiner writes, These verses are among the most difficult in Revelation, and interpreters differ regarding their meaning. No kidding, Tom. Greg Beale writes, there are at least five. Get that five broad interpretations of these two verses. That's the first two verses of the chapter, and variants of each one of those five. That's fun. Greg uh, finally Grant Osborne, who has become one of my favorite commentators, writes the many interpretations of these two witnesses. That's when is in this chapter make this one of the most debated passages in the book and indicate its importance so there you go all that to say i come to you with a fair degree of trepidation and trembling as i want to faithfully interpret and apply this chapter f- for us see i found as i continued reading the, the 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 base i i found as i continued reading the the basic Difference in interpretation are sy- systematic. What do I mean by that? That your system of biblical interpretation guides your understanding of the text. And I find that most will superimpose their system on the text. I do. So, for example, if you are a member of one system, you will see an actual rebuilt temple at some point in the future in Jerusalem. If you are a member of the other system, of those two, you will see this referring not to an actual temple, but to the church of Jesus Christ. So there you go. Temple or no temple. Israel or the church. Two actual fire-breathing witnesses or the full witness of the church preaching the gospel. And right now, at this point, you don't even know what I'm talking about. Neither do I. Just kidding. As I have said many times in our study, I will give my best effort to interpret this correctly. And if you disagree, listen, if you disagree, that is fine. Many much smarter than I do as well. But here's what I want you to know. Regardless regardless of your system of interpretation and thereby conclusions regarding this particular chapter, the nature of interpretation is consistent... And the applications are largely the same. In other words, we arrive at basically the same place. In fact, I'll just confess to you, I'm going to jump from one system to the other. That will be confusing to some of you. This is critically important. I do believe proper interpretation should be the goal. That should come first, resulting in appropriate Applications. We don't go to application first, we go to interpretation first. But in this case, the general teaching of the text, regardless of the details of interpretation, I believe will bring you to the right place. I think. So now that I've prepared you to be amazed, even dazzled, let's read the text. Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 to 14 say, Then there was given me, that is John, a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the cord which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months." And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Is anyone confused at this point? And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast, we haven't met the beast yet. The beast comes out of the abyss, will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate and they will send gifts to one another, just like Christmas. Because these two prophets... uh, tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after these three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. You will remember, John said at the end of chapter 8 that there were three woes which correspond to the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh trumpets. The first woe, is the fifth trumpet, which releases the locusts from the bottomless pit, which then torment people for five months. Second woe is the sixth trumpet, which sees the release of the four fallen angels at the Euphrates River, and, and along with their demonic hordes or demonic armies, which kill one-third of humankind. That sixth trumpet came at the end of chapter 9, where we saw people still refuse to repent. That's so hard. Between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, there's an interlude, just as there was between the sixth and the seventh seals. We talked about that last week. That was Revelation 7. The interlude between the seals was made up of two visions. Remember the 144 the ceiling of the 144,000, and the vision of the worship of heaven, which includes a countless multitude of people in white ro- robes, washed white by the blood of the Lamb. Here was the point. Here is the point. While the three sets of judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, deal primarily with, with God's wrath poured out on earth dwellers, unbelievers who refuse to repent, these interludes deal primarily with, with believers so the interlude between the 6th and the 7th trumpets in chapters 10 and 11 deal this interlude deals with believers Chapter 10, last week we saw this strong angel descend from heaven and plant his feet on the sea and on the land, communicating God's total sovereignty over everything that was happening. The angel raises his right hand um, uh, and swears an oath by our eternal creator, remember, that there will be delay no longer, the end is imminent, it's coming. John is then instructed to eat the book held by this strong angel, which was sweet to his taste as God's word always is, but bitter in the stomach, likely because, we suggested, the book contained the truths about the judgment of the wicked, and bitter because of the persecution of the righteous, the coming troubles. It brings us to the second vision of this interlude in chapter 11, which we just read. Believe it or not, that also deals with believers, The point being, what is going on with believers during the day of the Lord that is the pouring out of His wrath? What's happening? If we're still here, some question about that. If we're still here, what happens? Here's what we see. Namely, we will see believers' spiritual protection, that's sweet, and physical persecution, that's bitter, in the midst of witness. In fact, that's the outline of the text. Uh, protection and persecution at the temple, and then the proclamation or the ministry of the two witnesses, and then completion of the second woe and the announcement of the third. That's verse 14. Second woe is finished. That that that's done. And now that third one's coming, that's verse 15 and following is the seventh trumpet, which is the third woe. So I've just preached point three. Yay, yay. Look at those first two verses to see what I am suggesting is spiritual protection and physical persecution for you. Because this is not only true in the distant or near near or distant future, it's true now. John uh, becomes part of this vision just like the last and the first vision of, the interlude, of this interlude. And in chapter 10, John takes and eats the sweet and sour book. In this one, he is given a measuring rod like a staff. It grow by the rivers. It was very stiff, reed, very light. It could grow up to 15, 20 feet long. And someone, uh, like, likely either the strong angel or voice from heaven, told him to measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Here's the question for you. What temple? If the book of Revelation was written... Hang, hang with me here just a minute. First service, I got about halfway through this explanation and everybody had this kind of lights-on-nobody-home look. If the book of Revelation was written in the 60s, before the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple... He would have been told to measure Herod's temple. But as we've seen, most agree today, the book was written in the 90s, a quarter of a century after the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. And remember when Jesus said, not one stone would be left standing on another. That happened in 70 AD. And there has never been a temple on the Temple Mount since, for 2,000 years. I've been there. No temple, done with a rock. So when John is told to measure the temple, the question again is, what temple? Several options, but they typically boil down to those two choices from those two systems. One is that in the future, there will be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. There's coming a day that it will be rebuilt. In fact, I can remember when I was a teenager, I think it was, maybe a little bit older, some, th- this rumor circulated that, in, that temple stones were being assembled and stored in the basements of Kmarts across the country. I heard that. True story. Of course, I don't think, do Kmarts even exist anywhere? That's a problem. My, so it, there's going to be this one built in the future. This rebuilt temple. My personal question for that is why? If there is no need for sacrifice, since all those sacrifices pointed to Christ anyways, why a temple? It could be, as some suggest, a return of the Jewish people to Judaism before they convert to Christianity might be. But the other thought, other systems, switching gears, is that this temple refers to the church since Christians are called the temple of God throughout the New, New Testament. Consider these verses, all right, First Corinthians chapter 3. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? He's writing to a church. The church is the temple of God. And then in chapter 6, verse 16, or what, uh, 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 chapter 6, verse 19, or do you not know that your body, now you individually, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who, whom you have from God and you are not your own. Second Corinthians 6. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of of the living God. Ephesians 2. So, so you are no longer strangers and aliens. And you, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And are of God's household. Having built on the foundation. So we, we've got this building being built. The foundation is made up of the apostles and prophets. With Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole building. Building being fit together is growing into what? A holy temple of the Lord. First Peter 2. And coming to him. That is Jesus. As to a living stone, he was dead, but he's living, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a priesthood. That's interesting. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Listen. It is all over the New Testament. The church has become the temple of God in which he lives by his spirit. So as a result of that understanding, some suggest when the temple is here measured, it is speaking of the people of God, Christians who are part of the temple that Christ is building called the church. I will build my church. and The very gates of hell or Hades will not overcome it, which is what we see happening throughout the book of Revelation. They're trying to overcome God's people Uh, coming in his church, but they will ultimately not prevail. If you don't hear anything from this point, hear this. You're good. God's got you. I lean towards this second idea, although if you're holding uh, out for a physical temple to be rebuilt on the Temple Mount, that's fine, many do. But now notice, it is the temple that is the naos, That's that's the word that is used, the temple building that is to be measured that's the temple building is the holy place and the most holy place and the altar throughout revelation points to the altar of incense since there is no longer a need for a brazen altar of sacrifice and those who worship there so so you got the altar of incense you got the building and you got those who worship there who are to be measured how do you work? How do you measure people? I'm about 6 1. No, the word for measure can include the idea of counting. So count the people in the holy place who worship God. Oh, and, and don't miss it. We just saw in, in the Naos, in the Old Testament, it was the priests who did the work in the holy place, in the most holy place. You weren't allowed. But now we're being made into a kingdom of priests where we by which we offer sacrifices. God and worship the Lord here's the point why uh, why is it whichever one of your systems remember I said we're going to end up at the same place why is it either the church or the physical temple is to be measured or counted why is that the idea of measuring in this way throughout the old testament was for the purpose write this down of ownership and protection when God has someone measured, it is to claim ownership and to provide protection. In the midst of the tribulation, God says, count them, they're mine. I've got them. Ezekiel, very interesting in Ezekiel 40 to 42. Ezekiel is brought in a vision, he's not there, he's brought in a vision to Jerusalem to watch a man, presumably an angel, measure the temple with a rod. The same thing. Remember, Solomon's temple had been destroyed, and the measurements of this temple in Ezekiel don't match Solomon's temple, don't even match later Herod's temple. So the question is which temple is he measuring? Some suggest, like Revelation 11, this is a future physical temple. Others suggest that it is a temple representing the people of God. Take your pick. The point is, in Ezekiel 43, after the measurement is taken, God fills the temple with His glory. It was measured for presence and protection. Back in Revelation 11, I'm suggesting the temple here is measured along with the true worshipers of God, as God claims ownership and protection of you. Do you think people reading the Book of Revelation, especially for the first time needed to hear that? I got you. What kind of protection? I believe it is spiritual protection. Satan and his forces are going to come after you, but don't worry about it. Spiritual protection, because verse 2, John is told not to measure the court outside the temple, that is the court of the Gentiles, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread or trample Underfoot, the holy city for 42 months, meaning they will mistreat the outer courts, those in the outer courts for a period of 42 months, just as we saw in chapter 10, when the word was sweet in John's mouth, but bitter in his stomach. So also here. Believers who worship the true God will be protected spiritually, but the nations, that is those involved in idolatrous worship of demons and ultimately the beast, will persecute true followers of God, true believers, sweet and bitter. For for 42 months, three and a half years, time, times, and a half time, as we saw in, in the book of Daniel last week. Time, one year, times, two years, that's three years, and a half time, three and a half years, doing a little math for you. And right now you're going, so what? You're going, what does any of that mean? Don't get bogged down. This is all a bit confusing. I get it. I understand it. It's apocalyptic literature. But back up for just a moment. If you want to, if you want to wade into the weeds and figure this all out, you can teach this series on the book of Revelation. We'll even give you a room. You can do it. But don't get, I want you to back up and see the big picture. We're going to see this time frame over and over through the rest of the book of Revelation. It represents, I believe, the second half of the 70th week of Daniel, the seven-year tribulation, the second half of, the, of seven years, three and a half years, called the Great Tribulation, which is when I think the seventh, now I'm wading into the weeds, the seventh trumpet and the seven bowls are actually unleashed. So what happens when these judgments are being unleashed on the world. Believers who are present are sealed, chapter 7, and protected from God's wrath and spiritually protected from the attacks of the beast. You'll be okay. But they will not be physically protected, leading us to the two witnesses in verses 3 to 13. In other words, believers will be severely opposed by unbelievers, in some cases, leading to martyrdom. And John is telling us, God's got you. If there is anything that COVID taught the Church of Jesus Christ, is that that far too many of us are afraid of dying. And if we are afraid of a virus that we cannot see, what will we do when we face the beast? Do we not see this kind of opposition arising against the church today? You do understand our nation is going to hell in a handbasket. Do you understand that it's only a matter of time where... S- Listen, a lot of the things that I say are culturally unacceptable. I get that. But there is coming a time when it will be legally unacceptable. What then will I do? Bring it on. Verse 3. I will grant authority to my two witnesses who will appear out of nowhere. And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth was often the attire of those in mourning or repentance, and so became the attire of prophets who were calling people to repentance. Interestingly, the 1260 days is the same as three and a half years or 42 months. You see, the Jewish month was, every Jewish month was 30 days, so three and a half years was 42 months. Do the math. It was 1260 days. I'm, I'm trying to help you out here. Remember that a third pounder is bigger than a fourth pounder. Quarter pounder. So, for three and a half years, perhaps much or most of the second half of the tribulation or the great tribulation, these two witnesses of God will prophesy and proclaim the truth of God. Likely the truth of the gospel and need for repentance. They will likely say something like this judgment is coming. So, when I say that, how do you respond? I'm telling you, judgment is coming. Where's the promise of his coming? Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. They will preach. Will they be physically protected? Yes. Until their job is finished. Verse 4. These are the two, all of trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. This should sound somewhat familiar. We looked at Zechariah chapter 4 several months ago, talked about the two olive trees and one lampstand. John speaks loosely and speaks of two, referring to the two witnesses. John says, these are the two lampstands and olive trees that stand before the Lord of the earth. The point of Zechariah is the same point here. They are standing before the Lord of the earth because it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. These two, like Joshua the priest and Zerubbabel, the governor, will be empowered by the Spirit of God to accomplish the purposes of God, and I'm suggesting you will be too. You will be too. Of course, the big question is, who are these two witnesses? Some suggest they are Moses and Elijah, because the powers they demonstrate uh, are are similar to theirs. We also remember Moses and Elijah met Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, so they've already come back once. We also remember Malachi said that Elijah would come before the great day of the Lord. So Moses and Elijah are good guesses, but in the end, they're just guesses. We probably shouldn't seek to name them, but we try to. Verse 5, we see that anyone who opposes them, these two witnesses, will be killed by fire that flows out of their mouth to destroy their enemies. So here's the question, like the, like the temple, all these two literal fire-breathing men, is this literal fire that proceeds from their mouth, and will these droughts and plagues of verse 6 be literal? I think the answer is yes. But some suggest these two, in apocalyptic imagery, represent believers during, the, uh, during this time, boldly pro- proclaiming the truth of the gospel, which if you think of it, is a message of fiery judgment to those who don't believe. So when I say judgment is coming, and you go, psst, fire. These two will be ultimately, I think it's two actual people, ultimately killed only to be raised from the dead at the end representing coming resurrection. Which is it? My favorite commentator again suggests it probably is both. Literally two witnesses since Deuteronomy says, makes a big deal about two witnesses to confirm a fact, to proclaim the truth of the word of God, who can destroy for a time, who oppose them, but who can perform miracles and who will be killed by the beast, the Antichrist, when he arises. But they can also represent what will happen to faithful believers. Has it not happened you do understand that more there were more martyrs for the Christian faith in the 20th century than the previous 19 centuries combined. You see, is it not also true that the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So let's let's work through uh, these two. Follow. Uh, let's look at the work of these two, followed by their martyrdom, the world celebration, and the resurrection very quickly. In verse 6, again, we see these two have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. Sounds an awful lot like Elijah who called for a drought during the time of wicked King Ahab, and it didn't rain for how long? James chapter 5, three and one-half years. Further, they have the power to turn uh, waters into blood and strike the earth with every plague so often as they desire. Sounds an awful lot like Moses, the point, though, is they cause mayhem, and everyone will know. Listen, everybody on the planet will know you, too, are responsible. So when they finish their testimony, which lasts for three and a half years, perhaps the entire second half of the tribulation, the beast that comes out of the abyss, the bottomless pit, will appear. We've not yet been introduced to him, but we'll meet him in chapter 13, chapter 17. He is the Antichrist. He's from the pit, which means he's demonically empowered By the way, the the beast is the Antichrist, the dragon is Satan, there is also the false prophet, those three make the unholy trinity. And he will make war with these two and overcome them and kill them. They suffer martyrdom, just like many believers have throughout time, and, and will so, especially during this time of the end. Meaning, listen to me, they will go the way of the cross. It's the way of the faith. We've been living in an evangelical bubble. Beast will ultimately be overthrown by the blood of the Lamb. This is a theme throughout the book. Victory is through suffering and death in the way of Christ. Victory through suffering and death. Do not listen to the call of the culture Do not listen to false prophets and false teachers today who suggest that God wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy and comfortable here. That is not true. The way of Christ is the way of suffering. And by that suffering, we overcome evil. We see their non-burial, it was considered the most offensive, insulting way to treat the dead, to leave their cor- corpses exposed to the elements. Why, at the time of Christ, criminals were not offered a, you know, afforded a decent bar- burial. They were simply thrown into a burning trash heap, a place outside of the city gates called Gehenna. Here, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. What is the great city? Throughout the rest of the book, it is Rome or Babylon. But here we see something different. It's not just a great city, but it is called mystically better. That's a mistranslation, I think. It should be spiritually Sodom and Egypt. Sodom speaks of immorality. Egypt speaks of its oppression and slavery. This city, which we will find is Jerusalem, represents the world in that it has become immoral and ungodly. Because you see, John goes on, It is they were in the place where our Lord, their Lord was crucified. Now we know, we're talking about they are doing their work in Jerusalem. And the sad truth is, even there, people have become even more and more opposed to God and the Messiah. I've had the privilege of being in Jerusalem. It is ungodly. Verse 9, those... From the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations. Remember, the last, last week I said that that list, that kind of list, appears seven times. The first two speaks of those that God calls from every people group on the planet. Now we find that there are those from every people group on the planet who oppose God and his Messiah. That will be true for the rest of the book because the world is wicked. Verses 9 and 10, we see the earth dwellers will look at those dead bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be buried. Again, the height of insult and offense. More, verse 10, they will actually celebrate their deaths. They will likely, as they will likely celebrate the deaths of all of Christ's followers. They will rejoice and give gifts to each other. Celebrate their dead. Just like a celebration of Purim when the Jews remember their deliverance from evil Haman under Mordecai and Esther, so also these people celebrate their deliverance from these two witnesses. And by the way, next month when you get gifts, remember you're giving gifts to celebrate the greatest gift that celebrates your deliverance as well. Verses 11 and 12. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came in to them. Another Old Testament allusion to Ezekiel. We remember the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37. Same wording there. The breath of, the life, of life from God came into them, into these, this valley of dead bones, and they lived. Can you imagine, as people have been celebrating the death of these two witnesses for three and a half days, Probably in a drunken stupor, exchanging gifts, continuing in their sin and immorality, watching on the internet or whatever is available then, with horror. They see these two stand on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching. No wonder. Can you imagine? Verse 12, and they heard a loud voice from heaven. Who is the they who heard the people watching or the two witnesses? I think it's both because it's a loud voice which says, come up here. And then they went up into heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. They went up to heaven in a cloud. That's interesting. We've seen over and over throughout scripture, a cloud signifies the presence of God. These people, these two witnesses have been faithful to God, just like murders throughout time have been faithful to God. And he's there to meet them. strong angel came down from heaven in a cloud. We're told when Jesus comes back, he will come in the clouds and every eye will see him. For Thessalonians, the so-called rapture passage says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that is, those who have died, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. You see, that's another way that Christians are different. They're different at funerals. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, those who have died in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain, who will have been putting up with all of this garbage, we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Do you not think that this would be encouraging to people reading the book of Revelation or experiencing the book of Revelation? Some take that passage, the two being called up as some kind of mid-trib or modified mid-trib or pre-wrath rapture. I don't think that's what's happening here. Only two go up, we still find believers in the rest of the book. We're going to find believers in the rest of the book, but it's certainly a great picture of what will happen when Jesus comes back in the clouds with the trump of God, voice of the archangel, and all of those who are in the tombs or maybe lying in the streets, will hear his voice and they will come forth. Verse 13, in that hour, great earthquake. Remember, great earthquakes appear throughout the book which speak of God's wrath. And a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. That's probably what it means by a tenth of the city. Um, at this time that John was writing, Jerusalem was about 70,000 people. Rest, the rest who watched all of this happen, the two go up, the great earthquake, were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. That's interesting. What does this mean? Does this mean that some will finally repent and be saved, giving glory to the God of heaven? Perhaps, I hope. Or does this simply mean that they recognize that the two witnesses were actually from God, the destruction they experience is in fact the hand of God, and they bow the knee and confess, as Paul said, there's coming a day that all will do it. I don't know if that means repenting to salvation, or acknowledging that God is God. If it is salvation, this is the only place in the book that earth dwellers do. So, there you have it. What, what do we do with this kind of text today? Grappled with this all week. Came in early this morning as I do and grappled with this this morning. I want to say to you, if you are a believer here today, rest in the assurance that come what may, you are kept spiritually and eternally secure. The body they may kill, his truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Do not be ashamed, be faithful to witness, and God's got you. He will keep you. But if you are not a believer here today, I want to talk to you. Several have said to me or to my wife who was in the first service, Scott seems especially burdened by this By this book. It's true it's for two reasons. Number one is because this book is... This book has been particularly difficult to interpret and to preach. But number two, and I'm talking to people who, who don't believe. This book has been particularly difficult because I read through all of this destruction and this mayhem. And I get to the end of chapter 9 and they still refuse to Repent. And so if people in the future who experience God's wrath refuse to repent, what does that say about you? You come on Sunday, I'm not even sure why you're here. I'm glad that you are. The the, the extent of your Christian faith is this hour on Sunday morning. And if you were honest, if you were honest, you would say, about a book written 2,000 years ago that has this kind of stuff in it at the end, you go, I don't even believe it. If people who experience don't believe it, what does that say about you? And I am deeply burdened because as I read this book, I see the future is not bright for you. And my desire for you is to hear the words of this book, to hear the words of truth. And for God by His Spirit, not by might, not by my might, not by my preaching will anyone come to faith in Christ, but by His Spirit, I am praying that God will open your heart, like Lydia of old, to respond to the message. Because some of you, you just come week after week, I can give God an hour. You don't even believe this stuff. And you go out and the other 167 hours are yours and you live like the devil and this is what awaits. What can I do? What can I do to encourage you to believe and to repent? I'm going to ask you to stand on your feet. Father, I am convinced. Survey after survey, we've talked about them. Demonstrates that there are many people in this room who show up. And when it comes, they, they, they like the singing. It sounds good. They like seeing friends. They like the community. But when it comes to hearing about you from your word, they, they check out. Not interested. They don't believe. It sounds like a bunch of mystical nonsense to me. And my heart is burdened. My, my prayer is... by your spirit, you would open cold, dead hearts to respond to the message of the gospel. I I, I wish that I could scare them to death. If revelation does not scare them to death, it's going to take your spirit. And so by your spirit, would you regenerate people Dead people, bring them to life today by faith in the gospel. In Christ's name, amen.